0: I watched it sinking. Hello and welcome to Mormon Stories Podcast. My name is John DeLynn. As always, I'm very excited to have you with us today. Today, we have a very special guest and a very special topic. Um, but before we begin, I just want to thank you all for your continued listenership. Thank you for uh, those of you who visit us at mormonstories.org uh, to leave your comments up on the blog. And most importantly, those of you who have taken the time to uh, make small donations or donations to uh, help support the costs and the time put in this podcast, we appreciate it. And um, we just most importantly are, are grateful to have you guys tuning in. So today we're going to be talking about um, a very important fundamental dilemma uh, that the LDS Church is facing in the 21st century. And the dilemma revolves around the notion that for over 100 years, a certain version of the Church's history has been um, taught in sacrament meeting, in Sunday school, in priesthood and Relief Society um, meetings, in the church manuals and seminary and institute, and, and any of us who are lifetime members of the church are, are pretty familiar with the basic facts of that history. Well, the dilemma comes in that there's a pretty significant chasm uh, or disparity between the version of the history that we've all learned and have been taught over the years and uh, what the history and the facts and the data actually show. And it turns out that this history... This uh, this discrepancy is a material one. It's a significant one, and there are thousands and and even tens of thousands of of faithful, you know, good, righteous LDS people all over the world who have stumbled on to this history, not because they uh, are doubtful, faithless, sinner, sinning type people, but maybe they're called as a seminary teacher, maybe they're called. Uh, into the seminary institute program. Maybe they want to be a really good gospel doctrine teacher. Or maybe they just take their faith so seriously that they believe that understanding the history, just like uh, an American citizen would study U.S. history to become a better citizen. An LDS person might decide that they want to study uh, Mormon history so that they can become a a better Mormon. Uh, Regardless of the origins, these people start studying this uh, history more in depth and very quickly start asking themselves, Whoa, I didn't know that. Whoa, why didn't I learn that earlier? Whoa, why is the version that we're taught so fundamentally different from uh, from what the facts and the evidence actually show? And I have to add that this, these facts and evidence don't necessarily come, or don't in any way necessarily come from anti-Mormon literature. These come from journals of our early church leaders. They come from journals of, of our ancestors and our pioneers. They come from... The church's own publications, whether it be the General Discourses or the Times and Seasons, etc. Um, these sources are uh, accepted by the church as valid and legitimate and often and most often actually printed by the church. So today we have with us a man who I view as sort of an embodiment of the church's dilemma in the 21st century regarding its uh, origins, its history, its, its founding story. His name is Grant Palmer. Uh, Grant Palmer uh, was um, employed by the LDS Church for, oh, let's say 30-plus years. How many years was it? Uh, 34. 34 years. He served um, in many capacities, if I were to read his biography. He's a three-time director of LDS Institutes of Religion in California and Utah, a former instructor at the Church College of New Zealand, and an LDS seminary teacher at two locations— he, uh, he's an active member of the church. He, he loves the church. He um, uh, values his membership in the church. So in no way could we call this man, you know, an ex-Mormon or anti-Mormon. This is a man who uh, has, has basically given a huge portion of his life to the church and, uh, and discovered these historical issues um, during his time in the church's employment and has written openly about uh, what he's learned. And the book that he wrote uh, that probably is of most, uh, that's most uh, well-known is a book called An Insider's View of Mor- Mor- Mormon Origins, again written by Grant Palmer. And he's followed that up with the second book that's uh, entitled The Incomparable Jesus. Now, real quick, before we actually begin the interview with Grant, I just want to mention that I've extended a formal invitation to the folks at FAIR, the apologetic uh, LDS group up on the web at FAIRLDS.org, and John Lynch. I've extended them a formal invitation to do a response to this podcast, not you know a response to Grant's story or a tit-for-tat sort of thing. Um, But as we're going to discuss in depth uh, many of the Mormon claims about its origins, the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith, Translation, the Eight and Three Witnesses, etc., we've extended a formal invitation to FAIR to do a response to discuss Mormon origins from an apologetic perspective. And John Lynch of FAIR has assured me um, that he will do his darndest to find someone uh, to do that interview. So again, we're going to do a fair and balanced approach. Consider this part one. uh, of a two part series dealing with mormon origins, and look for fair to be providing a respondent soon to discuss mormon origins from an apologetic perspective so um without any further ado grant palmer welcome to mormon stories thank you i should uh i should mention that i'm sitting here in grant palmer's uh uh house in his um is this your living room yes in uh in sandy utah so actually we're doing this on location <laughs> anyway um uh grant let's start if you don't mind um with your early years tell us about uh where you were born <laughs> your early years in the church and, and and let's just start there
1: i i grew up in salt lake city uh over here in east mill creek and uh, area um all my ancestors on all sides, there are four or five or six generations, uh, some of them go back to Nauvoo, and I would say I was raised as a very orthodox member of the church. My my mother was a Stake Relief Society president for ten years, my father was in Bishoprics. Ricks. Um, their best friends were Bruce and Amelia McConkie, lived across the street and down about four houses, so I grew up with... Uh, Uh, those folks in my life
0: in your ward growing up
1: yes wow and uh, in fact uh, my father and my uncle uh, A.W. Mickey Hart who's a songwriter and owned a string of music stores here in Salt Lake City for many years they used to ask uh, Bruce McConkie lots of questions and finally when he published Mormon Doctrine he gave them the well about the first two copies and says here, don't don't ask me any more questions. Here's the answers. <laughs> so yes, I I was affiliated with uh, uh, Brother McConkie's children and uh, I knew them well, and uh, and my parents were 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 very very orthodox in every sense of the way, and I grew up that way in a very strict uh, uh, upbringing. In fact, my mother was a polygamous child. Uh, her my grandfather, her father uh grew up in uh she grew up in Logan and Preston, Idaho. And uh and uh so you can see how devout and orthodox they were
0: yes. Yeah. Um did you have siblings?
1: I'm the oldest of seven boys, if so I have six younger brothers. I'm uh uh 20 years between me and the youngest one.
0: Right, so lots of siblings. And, uh, they,
1: and they all went on missions. They all got married in the temple. Uh, just very st- straightforward family and the, kind of a DNA-to-the-bone kind of Mormon.
0: Right. So what was your experience uh, in the church growing up? Did you have a good experience?
1: I did. In fact, I think a lot of who I am... Uh, uh, was the encouragement I received from the church? Uh, my mission—I I really bloomed on a on a mission. I, I just where'd you serve? I served in the Central Atlantic States mission, which is in, uh, Virginia, North Carolina, and uh, in fact, in 1962, well, the last year I was in the mission, our, our uh, mission led the world in convert baptisms, and I was very much a part of that leadership and part of that success story.
0: Mm. And did did you feel like you had a strong testimony uh, before you went on your mission, or, you know, when did your testimony come about?
1: I think more on the mission. My family always had family home evenings, and we talked a lot about the church, but you know how teenagers can be. They don't always pay a lot of atten- uh, attention. I wasn't a really serious student. I wasn't a very serious reader of uh, the Book of Mormon, and I hadn't even read the Book of Mormon until I got out in the mission field, but it was just expected that you went, and I went, and I ran into some fairly erudite people in the Virginia Pentagon worked at the Pentagon, and uh, and uh, I, I remember my companion after we were talking to a family. I think he was a colonel in the Pentagon, and he he bore his testimony of the Book of Mormon, and the uh, and I. And the, and the man said to me, well, how do you feel about that, son? I said, well, I believe it's true, because I hadn't read it all the way through. And so finally, uh, my, my missionary companion chastised me for just saying I believed it was true. But I read it, and I felt the spirit on, on almost every page of the book as I went through the Book of Mormon. And I'd say that was probably the, where my conversion took
0: place. On your mission, reading the Book of Mormon? Yep. Okay. Did you ever serve in the Potomac area? Was there a Potomac Ward back then, do you know?
1: There was. Uh, that was just off limits. We weren't allowed to go in Washington, D.C. I, I did receive an FBI clearance to see the inauguration of John F. Kennedy from uh, from a building in the street, but we, we weren't normally. That was outside the boundaries of our mission, but Arlington, Alexander Falls Church, Virginia. Okay. Yeah, I spent quite a bit of time there.
0: So many, many of my listeners will, will uh, who have listened to my first episode will know that in, in my mission in Guatemala, uh, there was a real problem with baptizing little children and and uh, inactivity rates and overzealous missionaries and, and mission leadership. Uh, uh, because I talked to you uh, a year or so ago um, a little bit about your mission experience, I thought I might just have you tell us a little bit uh, aside from the wonderful, glorious things that happened in your mission. Um, tell us about uh uh the baptismal dynamics that that you confronted and 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 dealt with on your mission
1: well when I went to uh central atlantic states mission in uh, nineteen sixty I think we were listed like uh forty eighth baptizing mission in the world and i i don't know how many missions there were but there weren't there weren't two maybe sixty i i'm guessing and uh, I think we only had 11,000, 12,000 missionaries out in the whole church then. We were baptizing lots of people back then, And uh, per, per capita missionary. Anyway, there was the baseball baptisms going on in England, and they, they led the world for quite a while. And then my, my mission president, George a who was also my stake president, uh, he'd really brought the mission up um and motivated as a very effective leader but towards the end of my mission starting in about uh, oh I'd say the spring or summer of uh, 62 and I only had two or three months left they introduced a plan called BABU FAM and uh, you were to you were to uh, get in your American Motors car and uh, drive along uh, your junior highs or grade schools and chat up the kids, and then the idea is with you'd you'd offer them a ride home to meet their parents, and that's how you'd get in the door.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, of course, that's kidnapping, but uh, that's one of the messages, the methods that they were using. And in August of uh, '62, they baptized 800 people, and in December of Sixty-two. After I had left, they baptized uh, twelve
0: hundred in one mission. In one mission in one month. With how many missionaries? I don't, I think two hundred. So were the parents even aware that these baptisms were going on?
1: No. In a lot of cases, uh, I, I, I in Danville, Virginia, we had we had been told that uh, the city fathers there banned missionaries from uh, swimming in swimming pools because they were they were they were dunking their kids in the swimming pool and. There are just a lot of shenanigans going on and uh, of course my own belief is that my stake president who had done a marvelous job and, and now my mission president the potion had done a marvelous job somehow he, he got carried away i don't know if he he wanted to be a general authority or something but uh, he extended his mission six months and uh, that's when the wild times really began on this babu fam and uh, <clears throat> I remember in his own conference, just saying that that this is really not an honorable way to do business, and that so, was that was regarded as negative thinking on this Babu fam
0: thing. To your mission president, or yeah, he
1: was in his own conference, and I stood up and uh, told him what I thought, and uh, that was regarded as negative thinking. All the other speakers were saying how wonderful it all was. Well, midway through the six month extension of uh, of my mission president's uh, tenure. Um, they began to get lots of requests for name withdrawals from parents. And they found out their their uh, kids were baptized. Um, stake presidents were getting upset because they were assessed as uh, so many dollars a, a member. And uh, one stake president, I think in Norfolk, Virginia, said that he there were a thousand people on his. Roles and he never even met him, and nobody had ever met him. They they never came to church, and
0: and uh, they had to pay the the members of the stakes the stake presidency had to pay per head some type of like, some type of tax or some what? Well,
1: no, some kind of a welfare assessment
0: per member. Okay, you know, okay. You know and they the they had to pay started. per head, but with all these children baptized, yeah. And he
1: says, I I don't want to pay all that money. I who are these people? Right. And, uh, we had missionaries that would make up uh, signs of the devil with a pitchfork on one side and Jesus smiling at other, and they'd say to kids, whose side are you on? And
0: uh, right.
1: and they'd say, Jesus said, well, you got to get baptized. And then baptize them without parental permission, just right up, turn it in. So when Marky e. Peterson came out midway through this uh, this extension of the mission president's term, uh, he, he got upset real quick and sent the missionary mission president, home early. Sent a potion home early. Yeah, he sent a potion home before the extension expired. And uh, he would ask a number of young people, what's the name of the church? I don't know. Who's Joseph Smith? don't know. So you know, real basic stuff. And uh, my companion, uh, Elder Ward and myself uh, from Malat Idaho, we, we'd teach school the prophets, and we'd take some of these kids and try to teach them but they were already baptized, and you know how missionaries—they want, they want to go on to new territory. But I was going home, and so I was so in this own meeting. I says, "Well, I don't, I don't think this is, this is a very honorable way to do business and picking kids up on the way home from school. I don't think I'd want my kids picked up on the way home from school, no matter what the intention by strangers and so forth and so on." So when I was released, my parents and I went up to uh, see the New York sites, and uh, President Smith of the Eastern State Mission, he found out I was a missionary in the Central Atlantic States Mission, and he wanted me to talk to his missionaries of how we're having all this wonderful success, and uh, I told him, I says, no, I don't think you want to know that, and after I briefed him, he he
0: agreed. <laughs> <laughs> but but it wasn't your sense that this is something the church presidency or the Apostles of the Quorum of the Twelve sanctioned?
1: Not at all. In fact, uh, uh my uncle Mickey Hart uh, wrote songs, and Joseph Fielding Smith's wife, Jesse Evans Smith, used to come up uh, to his house, which is two doors up uh, there on Lamborn Avenue from me. And uh, they do things socially with my parents occasionally. and. Uh, and and I'd get to talk to President Smith, who had a, a, a very interesting sense of humor. He said to me once, uh, here, I just got back from California. Here's, have an olive, and it was a green olive, and I didn't know that they were pickled. And I had a sour face. Oh, you must have got a bad one. Have another one. Right. This
0: this was him. But this is Joseph Fielding Smith. Joseph
1: Fielding Smith. And But I remember my mother saying uh, finally to him, she says, you know, my son Grant is uh, in the Central Atlantic States Mission, and uh, he says there's some irregularities going on back there with how we're doing baptism. He looked at him and says, yeah, I know. And and then he looked at my mother and he says, we've got to start sending out more doctors as mission presidents and less salesmen,
0: (laughs) 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 which struck me very funny. So did this affect your testimony at all, you know, going...
1: Not at all. I just thought it was a, a bad way of doing business, and eventually the church would uh, would would reap a, a negative reward from it. Yeah. They would always say, oh, there are good things that will come out of it. And I'm sure there are some, some of those uh, Babufam baptisms that uh, that probably worked out rather favorable.
0: <laughs> oh, i got to love that name, Babufam. Yeah. Sounds like a product from Ronco, <laughs> Mr. Popeil. <laughs> it was... It was kind of funny, sad, but, uh,
1: but you know, we, up until then, we, we were baptizing middle-class families, whole families, contributing to the church, and then they got on this, let's be
0: number one, and we were number one in the world in 1962, <laughs> and that's how we did it. So, you gained a strong testimony of the Book of Mormon on your mission, you felt the Holy Ghost reading it, uh, you enjoyed your mission, you had a lot of good success, uh, what did you do when you got home?
1: Well, I, w- I, I was so infused with a missionary spirit. I mean, I think I carried the missionary spirit like uh, eight, ten years after I came home. I, the missionaries I see today, some of them look like they've uh, lost it two weeks after they come home. Mm-hmm. But I, I was very uh, devoted uh, and uh, dedicated to that. And uh, it got me thinking about, I should go into CES uh, because of this. And that's what I eventually did.
0: So where would you go to college?
1: I went to the University of Utah, graduated. I, I did some study in speech, a minor in uh, philosophy, and I noticed those who had philosophy degrees weren't getting very good jobs, so I transferred to history and uh, received a, uh, a bachelor's degree in history from the University of Utah. Then went to uh, BYU and, uh, and and took a master's degree in uh, American history with a minor in church history, hmm. and then uh, after teaching, oh, seven or eight years, came back for the Ph.D., did all of the classwork, starting to work on my dissertation, uh, working on one of the two languages, but the church back then, and really today, they, they pay you well if you get a master's degree, but beyond that, there's not a lot of extra money incentive to and I by then by that time I had four children three children so I I was happy to uh, just pursue what I was doing in the institute program
0: sure and if our listeners noticed uh it's 11:30 Utah time uh based on the chimes of the of the clock i have to just ask you real quick uh um you were at the University of Utah in the 60s is that right yes um do you, were there any remnants of uh, the the Lowell Benyon T. Edgar Lyon years uh, that you must have come right after they had stopped teaching there? Were, was there any residue from that that you recall or that was an influence on you? Well, the thing
1: that influenced me most about that group of men George Boyd I knew the best because we taught together down in uh, uh, the the Los Angeles area uh, I knew Lowell Benyon. I'd gone to school at Olympus with some of his children Uh, Albert Payne, I knew of him, Uh, I I knew T. Edgar Lyon, I especially knew his boys, we were paper boys together. I, 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 I wasn't a friend of them, they were, you know, they were not my peers, they were a generation older than I was. Sterling McMurrin, same thing. I just looked at those men and I thought, they are really fine Christian gentlemen, and if I can go into the Seminary Institute program and and become like that. I, I admired them, and I thought I'd like to be like that.
0: Hmm. Okay. So when when did you uh, join uh, CES? Was that uh, in the middle of your graduate work or after?
1: I actually started in New Zealand in, uh, let's see, years. Let's see, 19... 19 sixty seven I arrived in New Zealand, and I actually went there. I was hired by the church to teach uh, history British Empire history and uh, taught a little science and then moved into the religion department when one of the teachers uh, returned home.
0: Why would the church be hiring you to teach British history?
1: Well, because uh, outside of England, uh, New Zealand is the most English-like country in the in their empire.
0: But why is the church in the in the business of teaching teaching secular history at all? Was this a church?
1: It was a church school, okay. and uh, they basically opened the the Church College of New Zealand, uh, called CCNZ, for the for the Maori because the Maori weren't uh, weren't getting a qualified education, and so the. The government allowed the church to come in, but over time we 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 started having a lot of us uh, students that were were or Europeans and uh, and uh so they, they wanted to give them a, a, a grounded education in their own British history. Wow. So it was this a high school then? It was really kind of a combination of a junior high, high school and uh, eventually they added on kind of all like a junior college. Mhm it was challenging me for a teacher because i was teaching all three age groups and never taught before and uh i soon learned that i was shooting over some of their heads
0: <laughs> right sure does does this church does this school still exist or yes it's still
1: there uh back when i was there they had a lot of american faculty members now i think it's gone more and more to uh, the locals uh, mm-hmm. that uh, are the filling the teaching posts
0: and so these were all native, uh, you know, Maori people that you were teaching.
1: Not all. I'm saying, like i was saying, uh, they were started out as almost all Maori, but as time went on, you got a greater percentage of Europeans uh, or, or New Zealanders, okay, uh, white Europeans, <clears throat> and, uh, and and that's the way it was when I was there between uh, 1967 and 1970.
0: So you were there three years? There are three years. Um I, I just have to ask this. At the time did you teach or believe that the the Maoris were Lamanites? Oh very definitely. And so did they. They were very proud of that. They called themselves Lamanites. Oh, very much so. And you taught it as part of the curriculum? Very much so, yes. Okay. Um so why'd you leave uh New Zealand?
1: Uh I have I have asthma and uh they have a 12-month growing season over there, and I was especially allergic to grasses. And after, uh, it was a four-year contract, and uh, the doctors told me if I didn't leave, I'd have permanent lung damage. So after three years, I
0: I left. Now, were you married by this time? Or? Oh, I had uh, two children Okay. at okay. that point in time, yes. So married in the temple? Oh, yes. Yeah, so all
1: my family, all my siblings were as well.
0: Which temple? Uh, Salt Lake Temple.
1: But I, I was an officiator in the New Zealand temple, and my gosh, you, the church opportunity was, was there. I was young men's president. I was Sunday school president. I was uh, Chief, a temple officiator there. Uh,
0: Chief cook at bottle washer.
1: Yeah, between my wife and I, we had uh, like seven positions, and, uh, and that involved a stake of uh, 250 miles. So we were, we were very busy in the church.
0: Do you look back with fondness on that time?
1: Very much so, and I related very well to the students. And uh, when I first went there, uh, only fifteen percent of the of the uh, the males in the school wanted to go on a mission. And so I I came up with a plan, ran it by the headmaster, that uh, we take our best students and have them go out with full time missionaries. And uh, I think Rulon... Cravens was the mission president. He liked it. He talked to Howard W. Hunter, and he approved it, even though missionaries were not to have non-missionaries in their vehicles. He says, do it. And within six months, we turned that around, and we're 85% of those young men now wanted to go on a mission, just by having splits with the full-time missionaries in the in the Temple View Hamilton area, and it was it was very gratifying. One of the things that uh, people probably don't know about me, I've got a little of the reformer in me. I mean, I've uh, I like to make change and and hopefully for the better. I've always been this way. Uh, I remember taking uh, uh, three full pages of ideas to the stake president uh, of how we could improve things in the stake, and lo and behold, he embraced about two thirds of them. Hmm. Uh, was this a native stake president or a- no? He was a, he was an American stake president. Uh, the missionary uh, concern I had uh, their lack of free agents. We used to march those kids in uniform to church every Sunday and. Uh, when I mentioned that to Paul Dunn, he says he went to David O. McKay, and they got rid of that practice. Hmm. What, do you, what do you mean, march him? Well, they'd line him up in platoon formation and march him to church in <laughs> uniform and cadence to a whistle.
0: <laughs> and subject. I went up
1: and said to the headmaster, I says, if, if I had to present the plan of salvation, in a, in a in a road show, this is exactly how I would demonstrate Satan's plan, <laughs> and they didn't listen to me. But when Paul Dunn observed this, and uh, Thomas Monson, they were over that area. When they observed it, it was soon gone. With uh, under, when they talked to President McKay, so there's a certain you know reform element in me, and I also did this. I was chairman of the academic standards committee in New Zealand. And I says, "My gosh, if we're getting if we have 600 beds here." And we're, we're, we have a thousand applicants. Let's be selective for heaven's sakes, because the school was not accredited. And what that meant is, is that our, our students would go through the school. And, uh, and even though they'd passed the school certificate exam, it, the, the school was not credentialed. So they, they ended up working in the meat packing plants. They couldn't get very good jobs. Mm. So I said, let's, uh, let's be selective and, uh, and do a little field work and, and select pre-select students we want to come here, and that's what we did. And some of the Maori people says, "Well, our people will won't can't compete because uh, they've been out on the pause of the reservations." But uh, but I think it was important to move forward and uh, have our people have a, a high school diploma that meant something where they could actually go out and get a job. And so I was in the forefront of pushing that. I was made the academics chairman's uh, committee chairman and uh, so I worked there I, I worked in the, uh, the, the the turning hoping to turn the missionary program around I, uh, I mean we had two-hour sacrament meetings I wrote a letter to the presiding bishop and he says you don't need to have two-hour sacrament meetings and uh, I wrote a, r- articles on evolution because they were very much against it I got a letter back from David O. McKay through my stake president so I've always been kind of reform-minded like this
0: and uh, okay wait they were teaching evolution
1: well they were they were denying that it was uh has any authenticity and that the church was against it and, and so, that
0: and that bothered you.
1: it bothered me enough because I knew that the church was neutral on it and sure enough the the letter came from uh, the, the first presidency under David o McKay and Hubie Brown and n Eldon Tanner and said that we have a neutral position on it i th- I think this little uh background on me is uh, always being interested in proving things it will help us later on in our discussions for why i wrote my book
0: so did you did you have lots of interactions with general authorities you know
1: uh some uh they would come to
0: church college of new zealand uh but not a lot no okay so so when you left uh what'd you do next when you left New Zealand? Well, they liked what I was
1: doing so well. I got a highly recommended from William E. Barrett, who was over CES at the time. He, he liked me, and the Alton Wade, the headmaster, American headmaster, liked me. And, uh, and when I arrived in Los Angeles, uh, Frank Hershey says I had come highly recommended. And so they asked me to be the director of USC, And I'd already found a home in Whittier, California, which is over an hour's drive. And so I asked if I could uh, teach at Whittier and Rio Hondo Junior College, and uh, they granted that. And I was there for three years and had a marvelous experience. Mm -hmm. And where'd you go then? Then I went on a sabbatical, came to BYU, did a Ph.D. study. And my four areas of uh, study were American history, ancient world history, uh, the history of religion in America and church history.
0: Okay, and so what year was that approximately? That was uh, seventy
1: through seventy three. So that was right
0: during the Leonard Arrington years of church history.
1: Yes, and he was he was going to be my chairman, and I I could have ended up as one of his uh, group that uh, that uh, he. He fielded Ron Walker, uh, Michael Quinn, uh, that group. I like teaching institutes, so I just kept uh, – so I left uh, and uh, and and went up to Northern California and spent six years as an institute director up there and, and a supervisor over a number of seminary early S- mornings. So where in seven. Northern California? Uh, Chico – Paradise, Oroville, California. I always liked to live in a forested area, and and so we ended up there for six years, and that was a very pleasant experience as well.
0: Sure. Okay. Um, so uh, just real quick, did you get a sense that, you know, 72 to 82 with Leonard Arrington and Church History Department, that that was an exciting time for church history? Were you plugged into the magazine articles and the books that were being published you know, did you even have your, your finger on that pulse from, from 72 to 82 when that was going on? Yes, I wasn't
1: totally immersed in it, but I was certainly interested in it. And I remember going to lunch with Leonard Arrington uh, and Dave Whitaker and some of the other ones that when we were in Los Angeles when he'd come through. Uh, yes, my interests were there as well, yes. And, of course, I had three almost three degrees in history, so I was interested in history.
0: Okay. So by the time you're in Northern California, you have how many children? Four four children, is that the total number that? Yes. You've had four? Okay. And uh, you were over Institute there.
1: I was the Institute director at uh, Butte Community College there, and uh, and two or three well, a stake of seminary teachers.
0: Okay. Now tell me, let's just talk briefly about you know what what it was like being a seminary institute teacher in the seventies. Um, you know, a lot of some of our listeners who are more liberal liberal. You know we'll understand the notion of correlation they'll understand um how sometimes doctrine or history can be rigid or whitewashed or whatever you know what was it like to be in it now that you're looking back how were you feeling what was the curriculum like uh what were the students like did you get a you know how did you feel about the the content that you were passing on to your students
1: i think the word is we were more open we had more freedom um My forum speakers that I would bring in would be, uh, my gosh, I I debated Walter Martin. He wrote a book called Kingdom of the Cults, and I debated him for two or three hours down in La Mirada, California, in a Quaker friend's church. Uh, I had him come and speak to my students. That would never, ever be allowed. So he's an anti-Mormon. He was clearly an anti-Mormon, but I thought he was he was weak enough in some of his arguments that uh, we could tolerate it. Uh, that that was probably over the line for me to have him come in. But I taught a class on uh, different religions, and I'd have uh, Buddhists come in, and the RLDS speakers come in, and uh, Pentecostals come in, and Jehovah's Witnesses come in. It was, uh, And I'd teach classes like that at the Institute. It's very open. We also had a lot of latitude of... Uh, of uh, of uh, fundraising we used to sponsor Mormon night at Disneyland we got to keep the profits all in all of Southern California we used to go to Catalina on our excursions we would we have wonderful uh, evenings out and all that budget money is all dried up and uh, everything's more correlated in every sense of the word both in any any direction you you would how, how would you do fundraising Fundraising—just uh, sell tickets to Mormon Night at Disneyland—and we get a quarter of uh, every ticket we sold uh, throughout Southern California. We we had a budget of forty thousand dollars, twenty-five thousand dollars from one year, about forty thousand. We had a lot of money to spend on social and cultural experiences because of that. A lot of enrichment. Uh, um, it's it's a very different program today. It's 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 very Spartan and very uh, very different.
0: So, do you have a sense for the the role you were playing in the lives of the of the seminary institute teachers you taught? Like, what? what how important was the institute? Were these these were LDS kids attending local California colleges, That's or universities? Right.
1: Mm-hmm. A lot of those who didn't come on to BYU and and uh, didn't have the money or didn't have the grades in some cases, and uh, we had marvelous programs for them, I think, and they. Uh, they seem to blossom and flower under it. Uh, I hear now in Southern California, the institutes are kind of uh, reducing numbers. They're, if they drop below 50 students, they have a missionary couple, older couple come in and take over instead of having an institute teacher there. Uh, so there, we were there in the heyday of the, of, of the CES, I think. A lot of uh, LDS families, it's so expensive to live in the L.A. area, San Francisco area, that they're moving to the deserts
0: mm-hmm.
1: And uh, if they have children. And, uh, that's, and they're closing some wards, and the institutes are getting smaller. And like I say, in Santa Monica Institute, it's now, as I understand, recently been taken over by a, a missionary couple who actually teaches the mm-hmm. students and so forth. So and we were there during the heyday. It was a wonderful time to be there in every sense of the word.
0: And how, how, you know, what did a church history or doctrine and covenants class? How did that differ from from how church history or, or doctrine and covenants is taught today? Was there a real openness about the church's uh, the founding teachings? This new Mormon history as it was coming out was it at all coming across? Is there is there anything an average institute student in the seventies that you taught? Is there anything that they would know? That uh, an institute student today would never have learned in terms of the origins of of Mormonism.
1: Well, back in the seventies, the New Mormon history, of course, was just emerging, and so you know we had our approved lesson plans, and we we stayed, we stuck to them. And I was certainly orthodox, and uh, I didn't know as much uh, then as I do know now about the more New Mormon history. My students certainly
0: weren't uh, aware of of it, generally speaking. Right okay so when did you start uh having questions or doubts or concerns how did you know what what becomes the kernel a starting point for what later evolved into the the book you wrote um an insider's view of mormon origins talk to us about how that that came out of a
1: very cloistered family obviously very orthodox and uh, my mind was somewhat open when i went to the university of utah and uh, things were more open and I've always been playful with ideas, always been curious and always, you know, pursued the truth, always been interested in issues, always been free to share what I found with others. And just in the course of, uh, of, of my studies and preparations, you run on to things. So I was aware of a lot of the, the concerns and, uh, and, and questions about uh, the Mormon past.
0: Like which ones? What were some of the ones you would have been aware of growing oh, the, up? Oh,
1: the issues that they're talking about today, uh, the, the book of Abraham to some extent, the, the different accounts of the first vision, um, the, the uh, finding of the papyri and the discussion of that. Uh,
0: um, you would have known that in, in college?
1: Yes. I, I knew a certain amount of these things about uh, Joseph and the and money, treasure hunting and peep stones, seer stones, and all that kind of thing. In fact, I'm one of the few people that have probably ever seen the seer stone, the the seer stone that Joseph actually used to uh, actually complete the Book of Mormon, Hmm. the one we have today.
0: Did you learn this stuff growing up in Sunday school? Did you learn this at university? How did you? you ever? More
1: at the the University of Utah in Western history, and uh, that's where I think the initial opening of a number of these ideas came from, Classes by uh, teachers in Utah history, uh, uh, a little bit at the Institute of Religion. They were starting to discuss things at the time I I was there.
0: Was that ever challenging to your faith, either as a college I, student? I didn't or...
1: participate that much in the Institute, but uh, Reed Durham was was very open. He'd bring stacks of books. He'd bring the tanners, the uh, publications and and he was very quite open back then and of course he and uh, Max Parkin got in a certain amount of trouble i remember Max Parkin telling me that he and the uh, reed had gone out separately to give talks on the first vision and the and the different accounts and the uh, and they both had complaints against them and uh, on that occasion and some previous occasions and so uh, the leader of the institute i forget who it was he said if we have one more report on either one of you, you're out of here. And so they both quit giving
0: firesides at that point. But so, just for, for for our listeners, these were um, institute teachers at the University of Utah while you were a student there. Yes, at the institute. Mm-hmm. So they would they would talk somewhat openly about some of these they would. Uh, more controversial far issues. more
1: than they do today.
0: And and even push the envelope to the point where they mm-hmm. maybe got in trouble a little bit. Well, that certainly would follow the legacy of Lowell Benyon and T. Edgar Lyon because that's. that's right as I understand it, how their yeah, experience Yeah, they were very a,
1: much more open about things like that. I mean, I remember sitting at a banquet uh, honoring George Boyd's retirement, and I sat next to T. Edgar Lyon, and I remember asking him, uh, how come they had so many visions in the Kirtland Temple era and so forth? And he says, oh, that's easy. He says, uh, And he gave me an answer that quite surprised me. He says, well, if you have people fast three days and then have them drink beer on an empty stomach, you'll see things. And I thought, what an
0: interesting answer that was. <laughs> That's T. Edgar Lyon, huh? That was T. Edgar Lyon. Any other, any other interesting memories you have of doctrinal nuggets or historical nuggets that uh, that changed for you as you learned new information in those years? Well, it was a kind of a
1: gradual thing. And like I say, I was always open, always willing to share whatever I found. and uh, And I found and shared many, many things over the years, it's when I began to take a, a more serious look at, uh, at Mormon history that, uh, that I got in a little more trouble. What?
0: I watched it sing